Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm definitely sure we'll both feel better after talking about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. My guest today is my friend, Kristen Kelbley. She and I have something pretty big in common, and that is that we are both straight spouses, meaning we've been married to someone who no longer identifies as straight. Kristen is the assistant director of Our Path, which supports straight partners post-disclosure or discovery that their partners are LGBT, and she's also the producer and host of the Our Voices podcast, where she interviews people who've been in mixed orientation relationships, which also happens to be where we met. Kristen is also editing her memoir, The Mercy Fake, the story of one fake marriage, lots of fake orgasms, and the search for what's real. Hi, Kristen. Hello. I wanted to start out sharing a statistic, and numbers are really not my thing, but I thought this was really an impressive one. In a 2019 study by the Yale School of Public Health, they found that globally, as many as 83% of people who identify as LGBT hide their sexual orientation or gender identity. That's a really big number, and that leaves a lot of people like us behind as collateral damage. Did that number surprise you? Um, I'm not surprised that it's a global number, that 83% of people who identify as something other than heterosexual might be hiding their orientation or identity. Um, I think, although we don't, the Yale Public School of Health study did not come out with numbers for the US or other Western nations. Um, Hopefully it's a lot less because we have grown in acceptance for LGBTQ people. Um, But I There's still a fair number and pockets of the country with um, different cultural expectations, etc. The the number of people who are hiding their orientation is still pretty high because we're still seeing lots of mixed orientation marriage. We're still seeing lots of people coming out midlife after heteronormative marriage, families, kids. So it's a it's still it's still with us. Tell me when you first suspected that things were off in your marriage. Was it gradual or was it an, oh my God, sudden slap in the face? Well, you know, I had a little bit of an inkling, which is not uncommon uh, before we were married, that something was a little bit off. But when we started dating, I was 19 years old and I didn't know what that meant. And I just thought, I thought it was me, quite frankly. I thought, if something was off in the relationship, it had to be me. I think that a lot of times girls in particular, but not always, are sort of taught to second guess themselves. And at 19, in the early 90s, I was doing a lot of second guessing myself. Um, And when we were dating in college, uh, he actually had a, my then boyfriend had a gay roommate. And he came to me one day and said, "Um, uh, my roommate is gay. And when I found out, I went in the bathroom and vomited. And I actually asked him at the time, I said, well, that's a really sort of extreme reaction. We were both theater kids. Okay, we can laugh about that. But we were both theater kids and we were around gay kids all the time. Um, But when he told me that his roommate was gay and that he got nauseous um, about it, I I thought it was really strange. And I said, why did you throw up? And because we have friends that are gay. And um, he said, because I was afraid that might mean that I was gay. And at 19, this made no sense to me. And so I asked him straight out. I was like, are you gay? Because your roommate being gay has no bearing on whether or not you're gay or not. 
And I said, are you gay? And he said to me, no, I figured out that's not what I want. And at 19, I didn't, I didn't ask the follow-up question. You know, I just, I took him at his word. He said, no, he wasn't gay. Who am I to, you know, if he says he's not gay, he's not gay. And I'm going to take him at his word. So we got married. Um, and pretty soon after we were married, um, the sex basically just really fell off. Um, it was, it, it was fraught sex. Um, it was, it was difficult, painful sex and, uh, and really damaging because we could only have sex in one way. And, um, and I began to feel like we were living in a platonic relationship, like siblings, almost sort of incestuous in a weird way. And I would bring it up every once in a while. I would like, why, why can't we connect so beautifully in so many other ways? We have so such, you know, common interests and we love art and theater and going to art shows and all this kind of stuff. Why, why can't we seem to connect physically in the bedroom? And when I would bring it up, he would either get very angry or he would shut down. So it was, and it was a kind of a banging my head against the wall. Like I was constantly trying to solve the problem of our, our bedroom issues and, and constantly trying to feel like, am I not desirable enough? What can I do to make myself more desirable? What can I do to make myself more attractive to my husband? Um, so yeah, it has a real pernicious effect, um, on the straight spouse's self-esteem and self-image and sense of desirability by their partner. What was it like when you first started dating and having sex with new and other men? Yeah, it's interesting when you, when after mixed orientation marriage, when you start dating um, men who are heterosexual um, or compatible with your sexuality, let's just put it that way, um, the, the behavior is very different and the indications of attraction are very different and the um, you know, I'll just be frank, like the, the robust, um, notion that there's something carnal about your relationship, which has been a missing ingredient is so, uh, it's almost like water to a withering plant after a relationship where that has been, there's been so much deprivation and so much denial for a long time. Tell me about the end of your relationship. Yeah, it had been about, um, we'd been together between dating and marriage, a total of 12 years. And, um, I just, I started to get to a place where I couldn't do it anymore. And to be frank, um, I met someone who was sort of sex on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed my own carnal attraction to this person. And I was like, whoa, what's happening here? And um, I, was, I was being drawn towards this person, sort of a moth to a flame. And simultaneously, um, after sex with my husband one night, I turned to him and I was feeling really cheeky, you know, like I, all of this attraction was up in my system. I was feeling really cheeky. And I turned to my husband, we never spoke during sex. Um, and I turned to him and I put my hand on my husband's chest and I said, so tell me what you fantasize about. And he sat up bolt right in bed and said, do not ask me that. Like it was cold and it was a command. That's quite a reaction. And in that moment, I just, it flew out of my mouth. I said, are you gay? And I had no plans to ask this question. And he looked at me, his face was white. He looked at me and he goes, why? And I said, because if you're gay, you owe it to me to let me out of this marriage. And then he said, "If you do you want out of this marriage? And I said, if you're gay, yes. And, um, and then he said, I'm not gay. And so, but the, the, the exchange was so intense and I didn't actually, I didn't disbelieve him, but I didn't believe him when he answered that he wasn't gay. 
Um, and a couple days later, I separated from him and told him I was going to date other people and then went and had sex with this person. Um, it didn't, it, it satisfied the, the urge to know what it was like to have sex with someone who was deeply attracted to you, which was, it was revelatory, quite frankly. It was absolutely revelatory. Um, but it didn't answer questions about my marriage. And we went into marital counseling and um, it didn't, it didn't take, and we had a very brutal, nasty, contentious divorce. And, um, and then it wasn't until years later, he remarried a woman after me and about eight years later. So we divorced in 2007. And then in 2015, I get a message on Facebook, Jill, that's like, that says from this woman, you don't know me, but I'm your husband's, your ex-husband's wife. And she said, um, I wonder if you would talk to me. I'm struggling to figure out how I didn't know things about our husband. And I was like, what the heck is she talking about? Like, what does she mean? But I was really hesitant to go back into that. I was like, I'm not opening that door. No way. I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. Like, not messing with that thing, that hot potato at all. And then she follows up with a text that basically says, um, we're divorcing and he's gay. And all at once, it was like everything just like chunked into my system, like 20 years of my life made total sense. Like, right. Like all of a sudden I could let myself off the hook because for that entire duration after the marriage, I beat myself up. Like I had failed. I had screwed up. I didn't know how to do marriage right. I couldn't figure out the secret sauce. I couldn't, I couldn't crack the code. Um, and I, and also not having that information, that confirmation sort of left me in this space of, I didn't know what that was. Like, what was, what, what was that relationship even about? And so it was really, really confusing, and she gave me clarity. So I'm very grateful to her and always will be for giving me that truth. Um, but it wasn't until then that I got mad at my ex-husband. <laughs> that was really generous of her to reach out to you like that. She was certainly under no obligation to give you that closure. Yeah, she was not obligated to give me that closure. And, and I want to be very clear. I'm not mad at my ex-husband for being gay. Um, not at all. What the betrayal was for me was that, um, that I wasn't set free sooner to be able to pursue a relationship where I was loved, where I was cherished, where I was desired. Um, that was the betrayal to me because I do believe he knew what this was doing to me because I brought it up every six to eight months. Like, why aren't we connecting? You know, we had those conversations that were just never went anywhere. We were just always circling that drain. And so that was the, the experience for me was that, um, I wasn't let go of sooner. And I kept, I kept, yes, it was my responsibility to take myself out of it, but in the absence of some overriding obvious reason for what was happening between us, I just kept saying, well, I made a commitment. I'm going to stick it through. I'm going to keep trying to solve this problem. Like I'm going to keep our marriage together. So, uh, and he had the, he had that key that could have let me, let us both free sooner. Oof. I feel that. Have you forgiven your ex or do you still feel angry with him? And if you have found forgiveness, can you please share how? 
Um, I don't feel the anger all the, because I did a lot of work. I did a lot of therapy and I did a lot of crazy things to heal myself. Um, I, uh, you know, went off and did plant medicine and <laughs> all kinds of things like that too. I really went deep because I just, you know, I wrote a book, um, you know, to try and heal myself from all of this, lots of therapy, et cetera. You know, we, we can talk about it now, but it really belies the depth of the sense of, um, of confusion. Of It's really profoundly disorienting for a lot of straight partners to really put together what what was that marriage? Did you ever love me? Did you, was I a beard, you know, in common parlance? Um, was I used as cover? Um, was I used for children, for a family? These are common questions. They're ugly questions. They're not pretty. Um, and these are questions that the straight spouse is often left with afterwards to try to pick up the pieces. And there's not a lot of permission to talk about it publicly. Like, because, you know, of course our closeted spouses, our LGBT spouses were going through a journey. Of course they were um, in many ways because of societal homophobia shut down and didn't feel that they could be themselves. But that does not mean that there are not ripples down the road, especially to the person who's immediately adjacent to the closeted person. That's going to be their spouse. That's going to be their children. There are absolutely experiences and ramifications um, down the road for people who are uh, have been in mixed orientation relationships or marriages. And so processing those feelings, um, especially the really ugly ones, and, and you can't really do it publicly. So you feel a little bit like you're muzzled if you want to say something that maybe is not um, quite so so uh, pretty and shinied up for public consumption right now. Um, it's really, really tricky. It's a, it's a hard it's a hard road to walk for sure. And there are, there are places where, you know, our path, the organization that I, um, that I help run, we provide those safe spaces for people to be able to say, you know, what's really true for them, what really they really experienced in the relationship because closets are deep, dark, traumatic, ugly, turbulent spaces. They're traumatic spaces for our partners who are actually LGBT, but it's also dark and traumatic to be in a closet that you don't know you're in. It's impossible to go through an experience like ours unscathed. Can you speak to some of the physical and emotional tolls that keeping someone secret had on you? Right. Well, there were absolutely physical impacts and mental health impacts as well. So about a year after we were married, I started having this just sort of indeterminate gastrointestinal issues. And I was going to the doctor trying to figure out if I had IBS or Crohn's or, you know, something like that. And um, nothing came up like, no, you don't have this. You don't have that. Um, I was losing weight. Um, I, I became severely uh, depressed at various points throughout our marriage. Um, and those things I now know were absolutely impacted by the fact that there was a big secret between us in our marriage. Um, there was, I was with somebody that I fundamentally did not know on a, on an intimate and close level, but I thought I did. So mental health, by the time I left, I was really bereft is the word that I would use. It's like a plant that isn't getting watered. And, you know, everybody knows how a plant wilts. Um, you're not getting this fundamental sort of nourishment in your relationship where 
you're mutually feeding and caring for each other. When one has a secret, it totally undermines your mental and physical health in the relationship because that relationship is not a fundamentally safe place. How has your past experience as a straight spouse impacted your subsequent experiences with men? So that was one of the things that I really became sort of profoundly interested in is sexual authenticity. What does it mean to be sexually authentic with our partners? And what does it mean to be sexually authentic with ourselves? And I kind of went on this quest and um, wrote about it in my book. And my experience dating uh, post-divorce, I really had a hard time being vulnerable with men again. And I went through some men and did the sort of one night stand thing and had a lot of sex and some of it was good and some of it was awful. Um, but and tried a bunch of different things and did some weird stuff and uh, sort of ste- stepped outside. It's all in the book and stepped outside my comfort zone in so many ways um, and could have sex, but couldn't really fall in love. And that actually changed about three years ago. Um, I met someone, uh, ironically, whose wife was a lesbian. (laughs) So in many ways, there was a safety inherent in that um, understanding of that experience. And I remember uh, about a couple of months after we first started seeing each other, um, I realized I love this person. Oh my gosh, I love him. And then I was gripped with white knuckle terror. And it was such a, it was a scene, you know, it was almost a scene out of a movie in some ways. We were lying in bed and it was after sex. And I looked at him and I said, I've got something I need to tell you. And he goes, he got really serious and he was like, okay. And I was like, um, ugh. You're gonna like it. <laughs> I was so inconvenient. I was so inconvenienced by the fact that I loved this person because I was gonna be unattached and not let my guard down and not be vulnerable. I was like, God damn it, why do I have to love this person? Right? God damn it. And I told him I I love you. And um, but then my body was shaking in terror and fear. I felt like I was falling and I couldn't catch myself and there was nothing to stop me. Um, and I, that's a trauma response, Jill. I mean, it's like the the moment I was finally able to open myself up to vulnerability and love and care and let all that in, um, I could have sex just fine, but to actually be vulnerable to someone else took a really long time. And to to make the decision to, even though I felt that fear and that terror, um, being vul- that vulnerable with someone else again, that I was going to turn towards it and not turn away from it um, was absolutely instrumental to my healing. And so I think that's the biggest thing that people who are post these kinds of relationships are experiencing is like, how do I trust myself and how do I trust other people again? And how do I ever open my heart and be vulnerable with somebody again? And it's not an easy thing, but if we keep like stepping towards our own sexual authenticity and showing up in relationship like, hey, this is who I am sexually, authentically, this is who I am, and who are you sexually, authentically, um, and then allow that vulnerability to be there between the two of you or however many of you there are in the relationship uh, and keep stepping towards that. Um, It's profoundly, at least I found it was profoundly healing in my own relationship. That makes so much sense. And it's definitely a process. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved talking to you and I appreciate you being so 
open and honest and you are the best. Oh, thank you. And I, it's been a pleasure to be here and talk to you about this difficult subject, Jill. I know this is, you know, this is really, really hard stuff. And I just want to let everybody know that um, if you are or have been in a mixed orientation relationship, our path has, it's peer-to-peer support. So we have support contacts and we have Zoom meetings all across the country. We have a UK partnership. We have an Australia presence. So, um, you know, we're, we're not just in the US and um, yeah, there's resources out there for people to be in groups and not be alone. And that is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You are not alone in this. Yeah. Bye, Kristen. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. She's Got Issues is produced by Gwen Sounds, Kira Shine, and me, Jill Smokler. We'd love it so much if you'd rate and review this podcast and pretty please tell a friend because you know what? She's Got Issues too.